How are you folks? My name's Dave Jordan and welcome to the Active Minds podcast, which aims to open up honest conversations on our mental health, celebrate stories of people's resilience and growth through dark times, as well as to explore and share the things that help us with healing, positive change and happiness. My fifth guest on the podcast is a travel adventure journalist and author, Joe Minahane. After reading Roger Deakins' seminal book, Waterlog, Joe became obsessed with wild swimming and between 2012 and 2015, decided to retrace Deakins' swims around Britain and then write a book detailing his adventures. No mean feat given the fact that he didn't drive at the time and wasn't a particularly strong swimmer. In his book, Floating, Joe beautifully details his journey in exploring his own mental health and attempts to find acceptance and peace through the healing properties of nature and wild stretches of water. I have a lot of respect for Joe and how publicly open and honest he's been with regards to his own mental health struggles, particularly at a time when it wasn't quite as acceptable, or dare I say it, trendy. I also respect the fact that he's addressed his mental health issues head-on, done the hard work, and has the discipline to put into practice a self-care strategy that works for him. Because let's be honest, despite what a lot of the self-improvement industry might have us believe, there's no silver bullet or quick fixes when it comes to managing our various expressions of mental illness. Whether it be anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, eating disorders, or drug and alcohol dependency, it takes a huge amount of work and bravery to explore the root causes and then gain the awareness needed to manage and overcome these debilitating illnesses. And despite toddlers, babies, furloughs, and pandemic lockdowns, Joe finds himself in a good place and grateful for all he has. I hope you enjoy it. So, Joe Minahane. Hello. Welcome to the Active Minds podcast. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. Joe and myself have just been in for a swim in front of the sea lanes, which was quite punchy for this time of year <laughs> it was more like at least it was not cold you know i mean those sort of seas are normally in, yeah you expect in november and then like there's the added terror of it being like you know 10 degrees rather than 17 yeah we took a, a pleasant warm battering <laughs> it was probably up on it i just couldn't get out past the first lot and then you look up and you're like shit we've been pushed along about 200 feet in the space of three minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at least this is the first podcast that I've done face-to-face in lockdown. Hurrah. Yeah. We're sort Which of is out. nice. You know, you can do podcasts again, you can go drinking again, all the important things. Yeah, it feels like it's slowly coming back in. Yeah, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a vibe and um, not, not always a good one. So the inevitable question for you with how did you get on in lockdown? Given that you've got a what a six-year-old, a uh, three, six, three-year-old, and a seven-week-old. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So we had we had our second uh, in the middle of lockdown. She was born at the start of May. Um, but in a weird way, that gave us like that. Like my wife always says that she had like t- like baby tunnel vision, so she wasn't able to um, really focus on anything other than giving birth, yeah, and having a baby. Um, and for me, like my work pretty much dried up. I mean, I'm being a 
freelance travel journalist in the middle of a pandemic is probably like no one of the worst jobs you can have. Um, it's weird. Like I think I've said to people before, like it, it sort of went from being like it go. It was very much day to day. I found that if I was doing, if I was staying focused on the now, it was okay. It was when I started thinking, like especially sort of medium term, like over the next sort of six months to a year, that I'd feel quite overwhelmed. And what was good was that um, I started having. Um, a new, I went to a new therapist uh, end of the winter, and um, he's been amazing. Um, he's also based in Brighton, where I live, rather than in London. So it, it's not like the onerous charge of like a London therapist plus having to get to London, like taking like a whole day out to do something like that, rather than just like an hour before work where you just like you go down the road, um, or when you could go and see someone rather than doing it over Zoom. Um, so that has really helped, but yeah, the I don't know. Like, I actually, I think I found the end of lockdown, or like the you know, sort of the breakdown of lockdown, harder than lockdown itself. Yeah, it seems. I think a lot of people I spoke to it seemed a lot simple. Like the actual concept of a lockdown is is pretty simple, right? Stay at home, don't go out. That's it, right? You know, and we're fortunate in a way that you know our, our boys just turned three, and he's just he hasn't got a clue what's going on. He's just fun. He was like, this is brilliant. I don't have to go to nursery anymore. I just want to play. <laughs> we're like, yeah, actually, that's great. And then I think for me, once the self-employed, I was very lucky I got the self-employed grant. So once that came, it was like, well, I've, it's all bets are off. Like, you know, it's not a holiday, but it's just like- You've enough to, to get by and, yeah, and it's time to, safe. Yeah, and it's time to slow down and we're all safe and we're okay. And like family are safe. You know, fortunately, you know, we've not been touched by it in that regard, you know? Mm. Obviously, you know, tens of thousands of people have. and and you know, I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, it was actually really good because actually, you know, that just realized like I'm just, it's made me realize how privileged I am, basically. That and everything else that's happened in, in you know, in time since. Mm. But yeah, like privilege has been the watchword for me. So, so having therapy throughout must have helped with, with getting a plan together and, and coping strategies. Yeah. And then just focusing on, on the baby and keeping the family safe. Yeah, because that's, mm. I mean, you know, like when you, you know, you know this. Like when you have a baby, like you can focus on. Yeah, you, know, you can get like it's either you think of like the big long term terror, or you just focus on like you know, they need their their bum changing, or they need you know they when are they going to smile? Like that's it. It wasn't. Yeah, it it strips everything back. But yeah, the therapy's been really really good. I mean, I was swimming throughout. Um, I didn't swim as much this winter as I did previous the year before, mostly because. Um, I couldn't be asked. <laughs> it just, it just. You've the, heard it here first, folks. Just, okay. I think it just got to the point where it's just like some days I get up and I'm like, it's so cold and I just can't be bothered. And I knew it would make me feel really good. I was going maybe like once or I say I wasn't doing much. Like once or twice a week in January is pretty good going. Yeah, I mean that's on on I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. I mean I did it as much as I can, but when it, when it's shitty weather in January or February. It's just, I mean, I know that it's like a way, my wife always says this, like about going out in winter, it's like a way of like pulling back a bit, like, you know, you know, you sort of get back a bit of the day if you go out and do something like that. And you do. But my feeling with that was if I didn't do it first thing, I wasn't going to do it. Because especially here in Brighton, once it gets windy and, you know, and that's always later in the day. But if you haven't done it by like, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, you're not going to do it. But then uh, at the same time, I've been doing yoga every day as well. I keep a diary. 
like those are the th- like the holy trinity if i do those three things in a day it's like yoga swim diary it keeps your head that is like straight. that keeps my head really really straight that's yeah. like good top-notch self-care package and actually overall in terms of like time spent i'm talking i'm talking like doing max half an hour yoga a day the swim in january is like three minutes mm. if that the journal takes 10 so you're looking at like an hour a day mm. to look after yourself i don't think that's that bad no um but then obviously when you know throw another kid in the mix and then having to look after the oldest because there's not nursery that gets, makes it hard, that makes that. it harder because mm. then you know, you you don't you know you know what's the first thing to go it's the thing it's your thing right because you worry about other people and you worry about your family mm. um but it's strange i think my anxiety's been a lot more under control which we've been quite surprised, like pleasantly surprised. I've been pleasantly surprised by that. That's great. But yeah. I mean, it, it's really good. Uh, it could have been, I know people who really, really struggled at the start, like, especially at the start of this, because it's like, it is overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I was saying to you on the beach, I've really struggled yeah. again towards the latter stages of, yeah. of the lockdown. Like it's, it's been up and down, but the self-isolation for, for, for two weeks was, uh, it's just tough. really tough going. Yeah, you know, you know, you, you know, you need um, you need a routine. You need something. I think that was the thing at the start where, before, I think I actually found the the bit I probably found hardest, other than this last couple of weeks of what we end of June, was the bit at the start of March when no one knew what was going on, and you were watching it all happen all around the world, but not like here. It just felt like we were going, yeah, right. And I think there's been a lot from my end, like my overriding emotion has just been like massive amounts of resentment and anger towards government for like, just basically for being left to fend for ourselves. And I find that like, you know, pretty, um, pretty frightening, but like pretty frustrating. But then also you have to realize, or, you know, it's not much you can really do about that. You know, I was just so furious. And then it's like, well, that energy isn't, that's not serving anything. Still got to look after the kids. I've still got to, you know, try and find some work and make sure that the family's all right. It is. It is a concern, though, given yeah. how they've handled it, and as you sort of alluded to, what's yet to come. You know, getting out of this yeah. brutal recession and everything else that's going to come with it, it. It doesn't instill confidence, does it? I think that's the, the scary thing for me. Is like not. It's like the eco- economic stuff hasn't even started yet. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like we're in this weird little liminal state of like, when's that going to come? Like, you know, is it October when the furlough thing ends? What does that look like? What does work look like? Yeah. You know, and what does, you know, we've been really, really fortunate, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Does Keely, has she been working? No, she's on maternity leave. Um, but she's, she's, she was employed. working. Well, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was furloughed, which actually worked out quite well because it just meant we had, you know, more time um, with kids, and that's been great. But yeah, I mean, it, it's quite hard. I'm, I'm still like, I still don't really know how we survive those first. I think just just find like imposing some kind of routine. Because I think in the first week we were just letting like Miles, our eldest, just like he was in his pajamas till lunchtime, and he was having, he was just, <laughs> so so was I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were all like, this is brilliant. And I just like, put on like my outfit was like a pair of tracksuit bottoms and like a big thick shirt, you know. And then it got you know, then the weather got better, and it was oh, you know, I'll just switch to shorts. Yeah, the routine 
thing is still a real issue for me because I was working from Platform 9 and mm-hmm. Hove, you know, before it all, really social, you know, yeah, meeting loads of people. Yeah. And now the days and weeks have just sort of blended into one and it's hard to keep, particularly being self-employed like yourself, to, to, to focus yeah. on getting work done and... Yeah, and getting everything else done and like delineating days. I mean, it's hard, it's hard enough when you're self-employed anyway. And I think a lot of my issues, maybe when they first started rearing their head a decade ago, when I first started being able to name anxiety, name, name depression, I was like 10 years ago when I was first self-employed. <clears throat> because, like, you know, it does fall onto you to, you know, dream up, you know, come up with your own routine. No one else is doing it for you. It's, not, it's not the ideal setup for people <laughs> suffering from self from uh, anxiety depression no no it isn't i think when i first started out it you know the idea of like co-working spaces didn't really exist you went it wasn't even like you went to a cafe you went to the pub i remember like you know i meet other self-employed friends and we just go to the pub in the afternoon oh, that's the, like, a terrible thing to do it's like on a tuesday afternoon just go and sit and have a pint and do work that, that's just not it's not conducive to self-care i mean that's been a big thing for me is like i've, I've not the booze on the head um over the last sort of few Boo- booze for me as well is is well it's a, it's an anti it's a depressing yeah, I mean, and, and I'm not you know I've never had like a particularly terrible relationship with it but I had a I did four months off last year and it was just like just an absolute like mind-blowing revelation I had a about a year ago so was it yeah June July I had I went out with some friends in London um and I hadn't drunk much in the months before and I just got probably I didn't even drink relatively that much but i just had a terrible hangover for like 48 hours afterwards it's just a tipping point isn't it it was just like you know what i'm it wasn't even the physical feeling i was just like i feel really really stressed and anxious and it's all because i had a drink so it's like so what's the thing how can i fix this it's like well just don't drink then and that was like a bit of a bit of revelation then i went away for work at the end of last year to peru and i had like you know and it wasn't a particularly boozy trip i think i had like three or four glasses of wine and i was like I don't really need this. That was quite surprising. So then I, I knocked it on the head over Christmas again. Now I was in the States uh, just before the pandemic and I went out with some friends, had a few drinks and it was like, yeah, I don't really need this. And so that's since then I haven't really, I haven't touched it. And it's just it, not worth it. Is it? If, if you suffer it's not, from anxiety or depression, the payback is It's the payback. That's the brutal. problem. It, the actual being in the moment of it, like, you know, sitting in a bar, having a few beers is great. It's just like, you know, for that enjoyment of like three or four hours to then feel like shit for four days, it's not worth it. Yeah. So that's been, um, that's become like quite a, quite a big thing for me, really. And it, it sounds like you've got a really good handle on your self care strategy that you, yeah, you have to be quite, quite regimented in the things that you do, like meditation, yeah. yoga, swimming, no booze. Yeah. I've got like, a lot of them now. And I think what I'm finding is when I don't do them, like this weekend just gone, for, ex- for example, like, you know, the weather was a bit wild. Um, you know, the boy had just had his birthday. He was coming down off of, like, you know, a sugar high and tons of presents. And, like, you know, it, everything feels a bit manic. So there's the temptation not to do those things or, like, you know, to, or if you, you don't have time to do those things, that can be quite challenging. But I do know what those things are. Whereas maybe, probably seven or eight years ago my thing was always swimming and that was like that was the only thing and if i couldn't do that then it was like well what do i do whereas now like i have to have i've got like you know this whole plethora of them so i'm able to 
you know, pick and choose as to which one I do, knowing that one of them will help me feel a little bit better. The meditation has been quite an interesting and like doing sort of breathing exercises and stuff like that. But largely, and like the therapy, like having more regular therapy, I'd had therapy before, but it had always been in like chunks. So I do like that classic guy thing of like six weeks. And I'm like, I feel better now. I'm not going to go anymore. And then like six months later, I'm like, hi, can I have another session? Please? I've, I've just done that. I've literally got back in touch with the therapist that I stopped like a month before lockdown. Yeah. Um, can we, we have a little talk? <laughs> can we have a catch up? Yeah. My friend um, Ruth is a, an outdoor therapist. So she takes clients um, for walks and they, they talk as well as doing indoor stuff. And she was saying that, that her, her experience of men doing therapy was generally always like, you know, am I cured yet? Am I fixed yet? And I can really remember the first time I did it thinking like, oh, there's nothing to talk about now. And it's like, no, there's just nothing you're willing to talk about now. Um, and what's been really good is with this new person, they're, they're very, um, yeah, they're very good at like asking leading question, um, which has been great. And that, that um, and, I, and I go into it very open-minded. I don't really go into the session thinking I've got to talk about X, Y, or Z, which he was like, that's actually really good. But yeah, I, I don't feel it's become part of the arsenal now. kind of feel I've, I didn't do it to when my daughter was born. Obviously, like, you know, it's chaos and like, you know, it's really hectic and I couldn't spare the time. And so I didn't do it for like five weeks. So when I went back and had a session for the first time in like five weeks, that was a real, like, you know, revelation. And then... <laughs> And then my son started back at nursery and came back with the temperature. So it was like, lock the door, can't go out for, until we get the test sorted out. So then I missed it for a couple of weeks and now I'm back at it. It's been great. But you're absolutely taking responsibility for your, your own health. It's got to be mental done. Mental and physical. Yeah. I mean, physically, I'd like to be doing a little bit more. But um, I think at the start of lockdown, I was running a bit more as well. I, I do quite like to run, but I like to run in the winter. I'm not really a runner in the summer because it's just like, I just feel gro- I just feel absolutely grossed out by the heat. I just really like it in the winter. Um, that's that was quite that, actually that at the start of lockdown became quite a thing. Um, running and then maybe going for a swim because it was like March, like the sea's still freezing. Mm. So I oh, getting on the bike and going down to Rottingdean and then just chucking myself in because then it was just always a bit quieter down there. And also like there was a little bit of like uncertainty as to whether you were meant to swim or not. I was like, is that officially? Oh, I just totally ignored that. Oh, I, 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 I did too. <laughs> so I bollocks Catch to it. Catch me if you can. Well, it was one of those things where it was, I was a bit like, well, they were like, well who's going to, you know, if you go alone, who's going to save you? And I'm like, well, I go alone every winter anyway. And I know that that, you know, that comes with its own risks and all of that. But, you know, I love it. And I do understand the risks. And I'm not, though, I don't, like that sea we went in today, I wouldn't go in that alone. Yeah. Um, you know, that. You know, that's one, I mean, I, I have done in the past and like I've frightened myself, mm. you know, and that, yeah, I think I've spoken to you before, like that thing of like you get out to a certain amount of time, you know, you go out however, however far through a certain number of waves and if you start to panic, you're fucked. Yeah. Like, you know, so it's just, you know, you've got to like ride the waves, go under them and just, I mean, which is obviously like a big metaphor for the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. Which is why I love swimming probably more than anything else because it is just the metaphor for dealing with all my mental health struggles. It's like, you know, you float, you deal, you know, you just have to let yourself be taken by the tide and hope that you'll get back to shore. <laughs> <laughs> Don't breaststroke, front crawl. In those situations, always front crawl. You're going to move a lot 
Yeah. Well, was, you're always going to hit the marina from here anyway. <laughs> There's your safety net. <laughs> so you, you were you were brought up in Essex, Joe, weren't uh-huh. you? Yeah. How was how was that? Fine. Yeah. I mean, I had a, I had a really um. This is one of the really weird things about like my sort of mental health journey. I suppose I had I had a really happy childhood. I mean, I had a shit time at school. That was all my way. I always sort of process these things. Um. I, you know, I was like badly bullied and, you know, I've always been anxious. I mean, look, what's really interesting is I never would have called it. I was just worried a lot. Like, I think now if I, you know, if you were at school and I, like you saw a kid worrying as much as I did about like everything, you'd just be like, they need help. From, from primary school? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a, you know, like, you know, it was always, you know, I was always stressed about things. So that's quite, str- you know, it, it's quite, it's, it's sort of part of my personality. So like, you know. My wife always laughs like whenever whenever I'm very relaxed, she always feels like slightly disconcerted because it's just like, <laughs> oh she, Jesus! She's like, what's going on? <laughs> she's like, what? Oh, that one time you were really relaxed, and then you told me you'd taken a Valium, and I was like, oh, yeah, that explains an awful lot. But um, is that part of your? Uh, no, that is not part of my uh, my. I'd, I've been on a transatlantic flight, and I was very tired. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I you know, I had a you know, it was. You know, it, it was very, it was very cheery and very like most, you know, very loving sort of family. So you just solid family parental, yeah, support solid support and like big Irish family. Like you know, my oh, dad. I didn't know your family. Irish. Yeah, my, yeah, my dad's one of nine, and they're from West Cork. So like you know, sort of big Catholic family. West Cork is the best county. It's a beautiful part Ireland, of the world, um, and I have not spent nearly enough time there. So. You know, that was like, there's that sort of big support network. But what's interesting is, you know, you know, my family have, have had a lot of, you know, with trauma with mental health in recent years. One of my uncles took his own life very unexpectedly. And that sort of was a trigger for a lot of us to talk about our own. In Ireland? No, here, um, four years ago. Um, mm. And it was a big surprise and, and obviously really devastating. Um, but it was a real trigger for us to all sort of, all of my, I'm like, I've got, I'm one of like 19 cousins, wow. obviously. That's even more than I have. <laughs> but then on the other side, there's like none of us. So um, it was like a big trigger for all of us to sort of share our experiences of that. And mm. I think there's obviously something that runs perhaps in the family or that, you know, perhaps it's genetic. We don't know. That's, that's the thing with mental health. Like I, I've examined my mental health and there is a predisposition within my family yeah. of, of mental illness. Um, but then you've got, you know, I had a trauma, uh, quite a traumatic primary school experience of corporate punishment over four years. Yeah. Uh, and then never talking about it, never expressing it yeah. and holding on to that for 35 years and not getting therapy until I was in my mid forties. So yeah, it's and- hard to, it's probably a combination of all, all of those factors. And it's picking all those things apart, isn't it? Like, I mean, I'd never done, like my current therapist had done like, a lot of work on like looking at childhood. And it's really interesting, you know, when you go back to those things and like going, looking through, you know, how I was perhaps like, you know, it was like, you know, given too much credit for like, because I talked a lot when I was younger. And this is something that I'm really trying as a parent. You're sort of wary of like, what am I putting into them? And that's like a big anxiety for me. It's like, you know, I don't want to turn my son or my daughter into, you know, am I going to make them anxious? Are they predisposed to it? Um, so it's like trying to learn how to not, not to not be like that, right? not to not be myself, but just to, you know, 
pick up those behaviors and like when I'm feeling like that, make sure I'm looking after myself. I think, I mean, having studied counseling, I've done level two and level three in counseling, you explore all of this stuff. And no matter what you do, you're going to pass on conditions of work and stuff onto your own kids. But the fact that you're aware of it and conscious of it in your parenting means that you're way ahead of most, Mm. I I would suggest. Yeah, my friend Jenny always says that, like you're role modeling, that, you know, you can't, no one's perfect. You're never going to be able to do a perfect job. And what does that even look like? You know, I'm not really, I think one of the things that I've become really attuned to is like, I'm not a perfectionist. Um, I think I learned this at journalism school and I was just a bit like quite slapdash about things like sub-editing and stuff like that. I, I mean, when it comes to, I don't tend to, it surprises me that occasionally I really don't tend to sweat the small stuff. And that's been a real, um, like done is better than perfect. It's like a real mantra in our house. And like, and that's not to say that we just like half ass things. It's just that like, you're never going to get things exactly as you want them. And, you know, that's, I think lockdown has taught, taught me a lot about that because like, that my therapist was saying, like you know, capitalism basically had to be had to be put on hold for like eight weeks, and then all of a sudden, everyone's sort of attuned to themselves and community and all the things that. And that's deeply uncomfortable for for most a lot people. of people. Like yeah. you know, you've got to go inward, yeah. and I think yeah. that was a real you know, perhaps because I've been doing a lot of that work in recent years, it didn't feel too terrible I, to I, be I, reflective. I think of that, so, you know? and, and same with me. Mm. But I think for most people who remain busy commuting on their careers, yeah. just busy all the time, even at weekends, that you, you never, they never have the time. They'll do anything to get out of doing that, exploring inward. Yeah, and I think that, um, yeah, because what's strange to us is we're obviously with kids that like you, you tend to, you know, you're putting roots down and you're not really going anywhere, but because our families, neither of our families live in Brighton, so we would be going, you know, normally my daughter's like nearly eight weeks old, normally we'd be travelling around and like we'd have gone to see family and everything and now we can't do that yeah and that's you know my job you know i was just starting to ramp up traveling a lot more and i've not been i've you know i've not like left brighton in like four months yeah which is just like to me i was got like every, probably two weeks out of five you know and i go up to the football i go to london for meetings all of those kind of things none of that's happened so it's just meant that you've had to sort of like really focus on home and focus on you know do it, you know, doing little things. Like even on a Sunday now, it's like, oh, I'm going to do the sheets and listen to the radio. It's just little things like that where you can just be a bit more reflective. Even like using those times to sort of meditate on what's going on mm-hmm. has been really nice. Well, the fact, I mean, it's worth acknowledging, <laughs> I think, the fact that you not only have got through lockdown with the newborn baby <laughs> and dealt with, with all of that and having a three-year-old in a, in a, in a basement flat with all of this stuff gone on. The fact that you've come out feeling good about yourself and, and stronger yeah. and, and cemented maybe your self-care routine is pretty impressive, I'd say. Well, thank you. Cause I, I, yeah, it's weird. I, I don't, um, I suppose I don't even think of it like that. I suppose it's just, you just get on. But it's, yeah, it has felt like I've, you know, got it sorted or at least got like you know got on top of it i think my thing well, is taking responsibility yeah, for it and i think my thing is always remembering that it, it's a constant process that mm. i think like we were saying about this sort of guy thing of like doing six weeks and then stopping like it's it, it's never ending but that doesn't mean it has to be onerous like you know you know it doesn't have to be a horrific challenge well i, I just looking for 
a lovely, insightful description you gave in the book, in your book, which we'll come on to. Yeah. But I loved you said uh, it was the start of a healing process, one I knew would never end. I think after I wrote that, I think after the book came out, I thought I think perhaps part of me thought it had. It's weird. Like- it's, it's, it's a tough one to get over that, to, to, to realize and acknowledge that there, there's, no, there's no cure for this or there's no silver bullet, that this is yeah. you taking responsibility or this is my, my learnings from, from my journey, that it's you taking responsibility for your mental health, the causes of it and, yeah. and exploring that and putting in place stuff to keep your head straight. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've never actually taken medication or anything for it. I'm not averse to that. Um, I was given some, and then because I was so anxious, I went home and just did so much googling about sertraline that I just shut myself up. And well, I was I, like, I, I, I went on on sertraline and had an awful time on it. In fact, I, I cite that as something that threw me over the edge. Yeah, it's funny. I know other people who said the same, but then I've also got another friend who is like, it's been an absolute lifesaver. I mean that as well. When I had, uh, you know, had a really bad depression, it did lift me above the water. There's yeah. no question. But it's it's such a fine balance of. I just knew that, like from reading the side effects, that I knew I'd probably um, go full like Munchausen syndrome on it and just like <laughs> be like, well, no, I've got all of these symptoms. So it was just like, right, I need to. Well, stri- it's, a, it's it's a live experiment. You go to the doctor, and and she said. Uh, okay, you're you're depressed. I think take these. You're like okay, and then I felt really bad on them. Felt worse. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I remember her saying to me like, oh, "You'll you'll probably feel eat crappy for the first two weeks." And I'm like, I don't think I I kn- I can't feel crappy for that. I need something that that's going to give me something now. Yeah, and and I did, and I did, and and you have to wait those six weeks, and then you're also told, well, I was told there was. An eight-week wait for therapy. Now, luckily, I had enough money. And yeah, I, I mean, I, that's something I, I went f- private. Yeah, me too, and that's something I feel very strongly about because, like, it's not, um, you know, I'm for, I, you know, privilege is something I keep coming back to. I'm really, really lucky. Like, yeah. you know, I can afford to pay however much money a week for therapy, and I can afford, you know, you know, I have the privilege of being like, living close to the sea. I have the privilege of like being able to swim and you know, I have my body. I'm, you know, I'm healthy. I'm physically fit. You know, I'm not, um, it, it, it's not in a weird way. Like I, I'm, you know, I'm the luckiest group of people, you know, person alive, you know, a white, you know, yeah. white cis male living in a developed country, you know, with, you know, um, that's financially buoyant. And yeah, I still, you know, obviously that's not to say that you can't have mental health problems, but, it's, you know, it, what, what's it, what does it look like for someone who lives in, in a city who hasn't got any money, who is, you know, not physically fit, who can't swim, who can't go out running, who can't do these things, you know? It's all very well saying, you know, go and chuck yourself in a body of water or whatever, but it's quite a, that comes from a real position of privilege. Yeah, and without going down the, the BAME route, uh, but I was talking to, doing a podcast with someone last week, and she was saying that when the when the recession does unfold, the BAME community are much more likely to suffer from the cuts, the job cuts, yeah. the pay, yeah, it's uh, the, it, and, and and their access to mental health is is way more. I reduced. mean, this is the thing; it's not just about money. 
Like that's the thing I've the thing I've learned is it's not just that you can say right we're going to you know cut NHS debt we're going to chuck more money at this but like you haven't got the staff there you haven't got the people you need the resources you need to build that that takes like it's easy to cut those things as we've seen but like, it takes years to get those things in place to have specialists to be able to come into the home so the, the idea that you could yeah. go to a GP and say look I'm not feeling great and they're like sure you can have talking therapy and you can start tomorrow that's what we're talking about mm. we're not talking about you know. Or it can't just be like, here, have a course, six-week course of CBT and then wipe your hands and this is over. You know, and how, you know, and obviously that cuts to a lot of issues of like, how long do you offer talking therapy for? And all of those, you know, you wouldn't, for a physical ailment, you would not leave. Well, actually, I mean, in light of the current situation, you probably are leaving these things quite long. But, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't leave someone that long to suffer and it shouldn't be left to the voluntary sector to have to pick up the pieces no absolutely and and i feel really really strongly about this because you're left when you're in your most vulnerable state mentally to navigate this route and i found it it was trial by error it was a live experiment that i was conducting on my own mental health i went to the doctor she said try these see how you get on yeah i felt shite uh I was then told there was a waiting list and I luckily had the money, but there was no guidance then in what sort of therapy I should be getting. Should I go for a, a humanistic counselor? Should I go for a psychodynamic? I, I mean, I, I understand all of this now because I've studied it. You know, I, yeah. I dove straight into this stuff because I was so terrified and was so desperate to get out of it. But you, you go to A&E with a broken wrist as you have. Yeah, you have your, you and, have your scans. And you're told yeah. exactly what the route is. Whereas yeah. this was, I was, I was left, uh, I had two really bad experiences with therapists and it just set me back yeah. so much. I mean, I was really fortunate that I had a good, like my previous one to this guy. It was, it was good. It was just that, you know, geographically where he wasn't, is no longer viable. But like that was... Yeah, I was just very fortunate that he was very empathetic, and like, and it was the kind of therapy that I needed. But like, it was just that it was actually an an, um, analytic therapy, which I wouldn't have. I you know, I didn't know what I was going. Like again, it was literally go home and Google this stuff. Same here, and that that should not be. That's so wrong, isn't it? That's not okay. Like you know, and I'm you know, I say this as someone who's like you know, educated, who is like you know, reads a lot. What do I don't know anything about that? I don't, and you know, and. In a way, why should I? Like, you know, I don't know. But there was no one to turn to to get advice. Did you find that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I I didn't even bother. I I remember not even bothering going to my GP because I knew that they wouldn't be able to give me what I needed. So it was just like, well, I've got to just do this myself and suck up the cost and whatever it is, I'll pay it. Same. And and that was it. And it was like, right, well, just use savings and I'll just pay and I'll just have to spend until things feel better. But I I, I was very conscious that medication for me, was a stick in plaster. Yeah. That yeah. it wasn't getting to the root of what was making me feel so shit and, and so anxious. Uh, in the end, I ended up taking medication and, and it, it did absolutely benefit me. Um, but uh, yeah, it was navigating all of this and learning this myself through reading books. Yeah. When, when I was at my illest. And that's the thing, like, do you really, like, you know, when you're at those points, it's like, you don't really want to be spending, like, your days, like, you know, put, you know, doing Google searches, going to the library, pulling all of this stuff. You know, I know it's, it gives you an insight, but it still doesn't make, necessarily make you feel better. 
Mm. It, it, it's such a... I, I don't have any... This is the problem. There's no easy answers to this. But I do feel like, you know, we're going to come off the back of this this thing now with a lot of people really, really suffering, people who haven't suffered before. You yeah, know, uh, absolutely. Um, in demanding services. And, it, you know, what does that even look like? How do you even go about that? And, you know, like I said, like, it's not just a money situation because, you know, now like the, all bets are off now in terms of money. That's it. You can't now, you can no longer argue there's no ma- magic money tree. There is, like, you know. Well, homelessness was, was solved overnight. Exactly. Like all those things that were like the NHS debt wiped out that apparently was a, you know, could never be done. And then it's just boom, gone. So, well, just an, an interesting statistic I, I found out yesterday. I think the government put in 500, was it billion or trillion? That's quite a big Probably <laughs> billion. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was billion to rescue the banks in 2000, yeah, in the yeah. recession. And so far, they put in what it's three hundred and thirty billion, isn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah. It's borrowing everything. So look, it can like that's the thing. Anyone who says it can't be done, it can. Mm. But I think this is it's given lie to this idea that you know the books need to be perfectly balanced, and you need to be you know all of that. It's mm. nonsense. Mm. So you know if you can, yeah, if you can pay if you can pay people's wages for six months, you can give self-employed people money for six months. Mm. Like why can't you invest properly in mental health provision? There's no excuse. Yeah, and, and I also think that, that that needs addressing at school level. I mean, yeah. particularly with the, the, the way kids are living now and social media and the bombardment on mental health. You know, there, there's study after study proving that there is a correlation between that and children's mental health. Yeah. And like in the States, that's one thing that they absolutely have it's a much better setup that there's counsellors in every school. Yeah. Whereas there absolutely isn't over here. No, and I think that's I mean, that speaks to like massive issues. Yeah, massive issues in the education sector as well. You need that, but you also it's interesting as my niece is I think she yeah, she's six, so they have like mindfulness time every week at school. Yeah, that's Things like great, but that but like actually making out that it's not something that to be that that mental health doesn't equate to mental illness. You know, you look up, you know, you go for a run three times a week, you go swimming, you go to the gym, whatever it is, you know, whatever floats your boat to keep you fit, you know, you do those things. So why don't you meditate for 20 minutes a week or, you know? Well, why, why did it take me 30 plus years to learn loads of this stuff that should be taught from very, very young upwards? Yeah. And I think maybe- so, so obvious to it me. It does. But I think, I think there's, I think the thing is like, we obviously live in a very progressive place. So like, you know, is that better here than it is somewhere that perhaps isn't that way, you know, that mind, you know, minded to do that in a smaller town in the Midlands or the North or well, wherever. Well, I think it's England, very but, random. That's what I've yeah, there's it no, depends on, on the councils and even headmasters and schools. Yeah, exactly. Or like an academy chat, all of this, because everything's yeah. so fragmented. Yeah. There's no joined up approach. No one knows what, no one seems to know. What the deal is? No, it def- it definitely needs looking at. I think. Yeah, but then when you've got a mental health minister who isn't, I mean, I I mean, don't even get me started. But I just find that her approach to it is just about like why you would appoint Nadine Doris to be mm. a health minister is just beyond me. I don't I don't understand it. Like, I just don't. I mean, I remember reading about Jeremy Hunt saying something to Alistair Cameron about like I don't understand how you can have depression. You've got it all, and it's like. 
you're the fucking health secretary. Yeah. Like, show some common sense. Yeah, that's a real, real glaring. Yeah, it's a glaring omission. And it's like you can talk about parity of care, but there isn't any between physical and mental. It's just not, that's just not true. It's not the case. You, know, you and I know it. You know, you've seen it firsthand. And if you're in a really serious situation, there really isn't. You, know, you can't be having people who've got really severe mental health problems turning up at A&E and then being like kicked out and told to look Wait after themselves. 12 sort of. weeks and go on something that makes you feel yeah, even worse. And like, yeah, and God knows what happens. You know? but, Have you seen the Alistair Campbell documentary? I haven't actually. I know that they did the anxiety one with Nadia. Um, it's one, uh, and it's the wonderful. Alistair Campbell one was, I mean, I've read a lot of his stuff about it. I, mm. you know, and I find, I think those, what's good is there's like a lot of people now are very willing to talk about this. There's no shame attack. I mean, I, I just don't feel, it's no, weird. But, um, hats off to you. I mean, you, you were a real champion to this and been very open and. But and I just, it's weird. I don't feel like any shame attached to it. Like nowadays, if I, if people ask how I'm, like if someone said, you know, if, it's not an excuse, you know, I, I won't come up with an excuse. It's just that I feel really anxious. But I think prior to, I was with a friend with our kids uh, just before this. I think it was like the week before and I was just in such a mess and she was like, you're right. And I'm like, no. And it was really, it was actually, you know, we've known each other quite like a couple of years. And, uh, and, I, and yeah, she, not, you know, she's read my book. I've read hers. Uh, yeah, we know, you know, we know about each other, but it was very much like, I'm not going to say, oh, no, no, I'm all right. Mm. It's, you know. I would have been, yeah, way less open before I had a breakdown. Yeah, about it. I was just reduced to, to flat on my arse, and coming through it, I've, I've, I feel like I almost have an obligation to, yeah, to open up about it. But even, even then, I did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and as part of the housekeeping at the end, I had to add a little extra recording on to apologise for not being because the the guy I was interviewing asked how I was, and I said, yeah, I'm all right, you know, blah blah. blah. And sort of skirted around it, and then after I just thought, Jesus, this is this is what you're trying to do here. You've got yeah. to. So I went on and and said how I was doing, which wasn't very good. But that's you know that you know it's it's okay to do that, isn't it? I think that's the thing. It's like you just you recognise after that that you're not. I don't. You know, it, it's it's weird. Like when I you know I I'm really fortunate that I travel a lot for work, and I you know I get to do amazing things. But what I've discovered is that when I go on really long haul trips. Um, I get really anxious before I go and then I get really anxious when I'm there and I found and that actually cuts a lot of the booze I remember being in Peru years ago it was an amazing trip and it was like I mean, this beautiful five-star hotel and I you know you I was didn't do ayahuasca did you what's that <laughs> you didn't do ayahuasca <laughs> I actually went to a place where they did ayahuasca and me and the guy I was with were like the guide the guy who was showing us around is like I'm the spirit guide and we were like we would not want to be doing ayahuasca with him like, Jesus <laughs> that, that Christ that will not sort your anxiety <laughs> no 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 that will that, I'm not into purging um, but it was really weird how like i remember just really remember going into this like beautiful hotel room and i was just a mess like, and i just mm. couldn't work out what the problem was and it was like well you haven't slept properly you've drunk too much alcohol you've not done like you know you've not done any exercise you've not you know you've basically not go 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 and i found now that every long haul trip i go on about three days in i get the same but what's good now is i know it so when That's last great. year i went i'm really fortunate i went to rwanda and um, I was with like three other journalists, never met them before. And I just said to them, I was like, look, I know how I'm going to feel. But then what I realized, this was the same night that I woke up at three in the morning, like 
oh god i need to go to the toilet and uh i all these trips had one thing in common and it was anti-malarial tablets okay and it was malaron so i did a little bit of reading up on that and then they were like, oh yeah this will like really spike your anxiety so i was like all malaron tablets bin i was like i'm just gonna lather myself in d and i'm gonna cover up and that's it i'm gonna take the risk so again this is a, a really good example of your self-awareness for your condition and managing it hmm. i mean that was really um because then after that like i had a i mean it was just, like, looking back on it it was uh, i had to if that had been a previous trip, I'd have just been really, really worried. But in the middle of it, I felt like shit. But I was like, this is going to be a story and it's fine. Yeah. And I'd like woken up in the middle and I'd like smashed glass walking through the dark hotel room to like lay a blank, lay a towel over the glass. I didn't, didn't get glass in my feet. And it's just like, you know, I was like vomiting, shitting myself. God's sake. And then the ne- that night, I, I sort of came, like, sort of tottered out. And they were like, do you want a gin and tonic? I'm like, oh, God, no. Just like sparkling water will be fine. And then after that, as soon as I remember the woman who was running the trip was like, you can't stop taking your malaria tablets. I'm like, I bloody well can. Because it was like, if I, if I carry on, I'm going to feel like this the whole trip and I'm going to feel really anxious and I'm not going to want to do anything. So if I stop taking them, I'll feel better and I'll just take loads of precautions. And it was fine. Good man. Yeah. So it's just like interesting. And then having come back since and spoken to other people about this, and I've gone on a trip since then to you know somewhere where they were like, oh, maybe take malaria tablets. And I was like, no. Yeah. Not worth it. So, just going back a bit, where where do you where do you think your anxiety came from? It's really hard to say. I mean, I think a lot of it came from I put a lot of pressure on myself. I think perhaps I was very talkative as a kid, and I think there was always the suggestion, not from my parents, but perhaps from teachers, that I, you know, why don't you do it? You know, you, you're you're too good. You know, you're too smart to be like this why you know if you ever did normal toddler things or child things where you either acted out or you were stressed it was or or you know or you played up it was like no come on you're you're too smart for this why are you being and i you know i internalized a lot of pressure um because i was quite a bright young kid and that meant i you know internal i i think i internalized the pressure pressure especially from teachers to be really good to be good and to be you know good at what i did but then also i was horrifically bullied as that four or five year old at school really yeah and that experience really really stayed with me like you know and that is a real you know it's funny my parents said the the guy who did it they got they got in a cab and he was driving cab recently really yeah and like it was one of those weird ones where it was almost like you know you sort of tip him (laughs) (laughs) my mum was like it's very friendly i was like don't fuck off and uh uh, it was almost a weirdly like gaslit because I was kind of like friends with him as well. So it's that weird. And then I had a pretty rough time again at secondary school with that kind of thing. And I think like that sort of sense of being a bit of an outsider, uh, which I was, you know, when I went to university, that, that was sort of put on its head because then I met everybody who was the same. Yeah. And so all my, I don't have any friends I went to school with, but like anymore, but all my friends who I went to university with, are like very similar. So you found your tribe. In yeah, the very much so. Yeah. Um, and that was a real revelation. But then I think by that point, what's really interesting is looking at the dynamic of being anxious. But no, I mean, that sense of being, of being, um, being anxious um, was, you know, there at university, like through work, about like through the work I was doing. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed in my career, which when I did was quite, 
But then it's like, well, what's next? It's always that sense of what was next that made me look very anxious. You know, what's the big picture? What am I, you know, what do I need to do to make me, you know, you know, I'll be happy when it was always like a, a big thing for me. It's like, I, I wish this was happening. I'll be, you know, I'll be all right when this happens. I think, I think that is part of human. So many people suffer yeah. from that. Yeah. Whether it's achieving the next promotion or the next. Yeah. And I think that was, I, I internalized that so much as a kid that um, I never allowed myself to think that, you know, that that wasn't, that wasn't normal or that, you know, it was okay to be happy. Now, I really love, there's a thing in um, uh, Richard Linklater film, um, Data Confused, where like one of the characters like, you know, can't we just, why are we always servicing the future? Can't we just be happy now? And it's just like. So, th- so that thing of living in the now. Yeah, and which has become like, especially in lockdown become really um really vital and actually like you know you can't get allow you like if you allow yourself to think long term it's fucking terrifying yeah i mean there's so so many common denominators here um childhood trauma or some childhood event that you weren't able to express or yeah and i still struggle i still struggle to find the exact point i can't pinpoint it Mm. Which is hard, which actually makes it harder. But then, in a way, you like, but like, I can't just pin it all on one thing. Like, you know, it's, it's a confluence of events. It's, it's, it's genetics. It's yeah, like it's genetics. Said it's like it's what you you're exposed to in the home or at school. I mean, I always think it's school more than way more than home. Um, and you know, it's that weird thing. And I remember saying to my parents, like, I feel bad because, like, you know, my parents, like, you know, I had a loving family. That, you know, so, so, so did I. So it's then Absolutely. that sense of, like, I remember, like, when my book came out and explaining everything to my mum, and she was just like, well, you know, it's that sense of, like, you know, what they never said it, but it's like, what did we do wrong? And so, well, you haven't done anything wrong. You just, you did your best. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it's not your fault. There's all these other things that go on in a child's life. Like, right today, like, my son is at nursery. I don't know what he's doing. I'll, I'll be given like a 30-second pressy of what he's done. Mm. But I don't know what's gone on there. Mm. But I don't know whether, you know, what's happened. And you have to trust that it's, it's okay. Yeah. And my mum lives by this, her mantra of, <laughs> her expression is, don't blame me, I did my best. <laughs> and I think that as a parent is, you know, if you've got awareness around yeah. how you're bringing them up and the p- potential yeah it can only baggage you might be handing on to them you, c- you can only do your you best. can only do so much there's always going to be baggage there's no way you can't you can't do it any other way right it's just how it is that whole thing of 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 living in the now uh is the the basis of so many of the teachings of the the self-help guys like deepak chopra yeah wayne dyer yeah uh, eckhart tolle it's it's all about not living in the f- future, not worrying about shit going on in the future. It's learning to train your mind to live and appreciate things that are going on. I think that's what's strange now. about like this whole situation we're in at the moment because like every, there's a lot of talk about well we can't go back to how it was or we can't. What is that going to look like? And it's like you can't. No one's got a crystal ball. No one knows what. I mean, I have a rough idea of what governments might try and plan or whatever but no one knows how everything's going to shake out yeah and we're not like my wife and i are very much not planners so we would say what's really straight like we moved to brighton on a whim we went traveling around the world for six months on a whim like you know we announced we were going to get married and three months later we did it we were like oh when are we going to do it and then it was just oh, sorry let's just bloody do it <laughs> so it's like that for our, and now we have kids it's obviously the, the game has changed somewhat because you have to you know consider them and their needs like you know towards the future but we don't you know i don't 
really get much beyond the next week, which is actually it's, it's self-preservation in a lot of ways. But then, that's great because I re- I really struggle with it. It's something I'm really having to try. As work, work is starting to ramp back up, I I can tell that I you know that will start again. Like I put something in my calendar last week for the first time in like three months, and it made me feel a bit unwell. <laughs> I was like, this, I haven't so, touched this app some since work. The, it was just like something. Oh, and then it's that thing of like, you know, you're asking, can I have work? Can I have work? Can I have work? And then someone gives you work. Like, Fuck shit. <laughs> I've got to do it. I've got this, <laughs> this week, I've got this huge like 2,000 word features to write. And I'm like, I know I could do it. It's fine. But it's just like, oh God, I've got to go and sit down and do this. Like, you know, and I've already like, you account for the money, but it's just like, oh God, I've got to go and do the work. Mm. You know, but yeah, and I'm lucky with what I do. I like what I do. Um, I think that's been a really interesting lesson for me is that, you know, a lot of it is trying to work out what you, what you do and don't like about yourself or about your life. And actually like to step back and go, well, this is actually pretty great mm. is really, um, quite that's a hum- really good point. It's quite humbling. Mm. Um, it's quite hard to do that. Um, I said that to my therapist the other week. I was like, oh yeah, I, I think I like myself. It was like, mm. I think it's like the first time I've ever said that, but ever, I can't remember a time where I've not been. I, I, it was interesting like for a lot of it is like not wanting to be somewhere else or be someone else or be or achieve something or achieve else. something mm. else or be or have another part of myself whereas it's like to say you're enough is that sounds corny but like it's true no it's huge you know, it's yeah yoga with adrian man i'm telling you she's great as that's she? it i'm just i'm all <laughs> i'm a fully paid up member of the club so it's oh, just that's like brilliant. that's my da- that's one of my daily fixes and that uh, you know it gets into you which for, is for good. those who don't know that yoga with adrian is this american yoga instructress yeah. who she's a bundle of positivity isn't she mm-hmm. she's and does all sorts of levels and 21 day yeah like you can just do different programs and i just do a little bit every day mm. i mean and different playlists and all that kind of thing i mean since my daughter was born like it's very much been like doing the, the quick 10 minute ones mm. but even that it's surprising like just how just a little Helpful it is yeah it mm. really is quite fascinating i find you know and that yeah, that's it. Because that is your meditation as well. So you're getting a two for two one. Two for one. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Top tip from, from Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that, that whole thing you've just said about I am enough or, or learning yeah. to accept, accept yourself. And I mean, that's the holy grail. It is. Bloody hard to maintain though. Tell, and that's the thing. Like, you, 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 you really, like we were saying earlier, you realize that you are enough, but you might, in a, you know, I feel like that now, mm-hmm. but like, Next week. Next week, tomorrow, I might not feel like that. Yeah. So that's, but that's okay too, you know? It's okay. That's the thing is like, you've got to remember it's okay to feel crap or it's okay to feel vulnerable. That's part you of know? the human condition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're never going to feel perfect all the time. And yeah. you can't like, you know, you can't be positive all the time. It's just not possible. Yeah. But yeah. Um, this brings us nicely onto your 2017 book. Yeah. Floating. Yeah. Which, um. Yeah, it's a beautifully written story about your swimming expedition around the, the UK where you t- retraced uh, Roger Deacon's swim. Yeah. Um, in his book, uh, Waterlog, Waterlog yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, tell me a bit about that because it, it was an expedition. It, it turned out to, to take three years. And yeah. by your own admission, you weren't a very strong swimmer. You also didn't drive. I do now. Automatic, oh, do I, automatic only. Oh, good man. Yeah, it only took me four goes. That was an anxiety one. <laughs> I, Jesus. I, I, it took me three. Yeah, I, that was one where I took the first two. The first one I failed because I drove through a puddle and splashed someone. 
the instructor grabbed the wheel, the examiner grabbed the wheel. Second one, too many minors. Third one, my therapist had recommended I take beta blockers. So I was so off my face <laughs> while I drove. I was just so chilled out that um, I was singing nursery rhymes that I've been singing my son and just wasn't concentrating. Fourth one, I had to have my instructor in the back and I passed. So yeah, there is that. Um, don't love driving. It's not really my thing. I just don't like going fast. I it would have made this whole journey easier. It would have made it easier. It would have um, added. It, it would have made it easier, but also I kind of love that I couldn't because it meant that all the th- all the people. It's so for me getting to all those places involved. I'd taken a train there, or which was always on my generally on my own. I'd meet people at the other end, or it involved people coming to pick me up, yeah. and that meant that it was the whole friendship thing. So when I when I started writing Floating, I, it was a blog and it was just like, it's going to be a bit of fun. And then that was just as I was starting to get an inkling or an understanding of what my anxiety was. And then it was a case of... So you knew you had anxiety? I don't think I knew it. I th- what's interesting is while I was doing it, I learned that I had anxiety. The swimming, I realized that how I felt after swimming was like, oh, okay, I feel this normal, sort of normal state yeah. of grace, calm, the overseer as like a therapist might call it. Whereas... Um, I didn't under, I didn't feel like that normally. You know, I was in that sort of sympathetic nervous system state where you're just constantly, constantly. on on high alert, yeah. I mean, and that is really, really tr- like it's you know, exhausting. And I was knackered all that. I couldn't yeah. work out why I was tired all the time. And um, so, uh, a friend of mine, Molly, who who drove me around a lot for swims, she has anxiety and has talked a lot about this. And I just really remember being having a drink with her after I'd broken my wrist halfway through the journey. I sort of had a bit of this road rage incident where a guy pushed me off my bike. Mm. Um, which was like a trigger for me to go to therapy and, and learn a lot about myself and anxiety. She said to me, she was like, do you have anxiety? And then it was just like, both of us were like, like, you know, everything came out. See, I, I carried that for over 20 years. Yeah. I didn't realize what it was. Yeah. I genuinely so- didn't realize what it was. And that from, from primary school, I learned to be in that sympathetic yeah, nervous yeah, system exactly, which is high alert, fight or flight constantly yeah i was always in so, yeah, i was always in that so yeah. i was when i was 31 when we were talking about that so i'm i'm 38 now so yeah i would have been in that position for, yeah more than 20 years 25 and years it, it is exhausting and it's just tired it? like just absolutely worn out by yeah. feeling stressed and like uh, anxious all the time so that um that meant that the swims became like a way of easing my way through it but then the writing was really important because every swim i'd do i'd write up yeah and then when i wrote the book i went back through all the blog posts and this sort of collated them and then rewrote everything and then flowed in all the stuff about anxiety so um, you just to you learned how normal should feel through the feelings you got after your swim yeah pretty much i mean the first ones were like at hampstead ponds i was living in london at the time so like yeah you go for swim in hampstead and then afterwards it was just this like very blissed out state and i think i was spending a lot of time alone because say like self-employed and you know, I had enough work and I was earning money, but it's that constant fear that you're never going to earn enough or that you're never enough. It just fueled that fight. Yeah, and mode. it really did fuel it. And I, what I found was I started swimming in the local pool in Ballam where I lived. And then it was like, well, I don't really want to be indoors. So I started going to the Lido and then I started going to Hampstead and then it just started reading more about it. And it was just this real, it, it's strange because not much was written about the mental health aspects of it at that point now. I mean, I think when my book came out, there were like four or five other books came out at the same time. And, and it's really interesting Like there's this sort of coterie of writers that are writing about the same thing. Um, and I think there's like a real movement behind it. What's interesting now is like the movement is sort of shaping itself to look beyond the privilege that it has mm. and how, you know, saying about the BAME stuff and how we can 
make it a lot more inclusive. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the swimming groups dotted all the way along up the coast from here to Brighton. Yeah, like yeah. I'm part of three. Well, that's it, isn't it? There's always that one that you can drop in on and mm. say, oh, like, can I come and have a swim? And it's a very, you know, it's a welcoming environment. Well, I think that's the beauty of it. It's the fact that the sheer absolute shock of jumping in the sea, it's a real achievement and, and it's the most immediate uh, mindfulness you can do. That's what I liken it to. Yeah. But also there's a social connection and bond, the chatting, the laugh. And you're, you're all almost high once you get in there. Well, like today when we got out, it yeah. was just like, just like, just couldn't stop laughing. It's just like, I mean, I didn't have any, barely any air left in my lungs. It was absolutely pummeled, but it was just hilarious. Yeah. And I think that social connection was a massive part of floating. It was huge. I mean, yeah. I, I know there were friends that I made on the trip, but then also it was like old friends that I hadn't seen or-, or From uni, your uni yeah, days. Yeah, from uni days up yeah. at UEA in Norwich. And like, you know, a lot of, Roger Deakin lived in, in East Anglia. So, you know, a lot of the swims were around there, which was great because it just meant like reconnecting with old mates. And I think what was strange was when- I stopped doing it when I'd like done all of them. Yeah, I remember going up there for a swim and meeting some friends and we went for a swim, but then coming home, I was like, I've got nothing to write about. Sort of felt like kind of bereaved a little bit. And it's taken me this long to sort of start writing again for pleasure and just sort of, I've just been writing a little bit about fatherhood and anxiety and nature, but for nothing, like not for just for myself, which yeah. has actually been a real leveler. Like, so, so you're a, you're a big believer in journaling and getting yeah, it out journaling. There but page. then also, this is like a maybe a book. I don't really know. It's interesting. I've had like various ideas and proposals put together, and I'm I was I did have this sort of grand plan for a, an interrailing swimming trip, swim to rail, mm. but obviously can't do that right now. And for like a because of lockdown, b because like you know kids, mm. and so that might happen next year. But I'm not devastated if it doesn't. You know, it's strange. I, I sort of read floating back and it almost feels like it's not me. It just feels like very, a very long time ago. Yeah. I mean, again, it's worth acknowledging what a, an incredible achievement it was reading through it. I mean, it's, it's, it was a huge undertaking. And yeah, yeah. it was like, uh, just, from, like just from a straight up like, logistics point of view, it was it got to the point it just was over like, it was one of those where you're just like so in deep that it was like you can't see the wood for the trees and it was like I don't think I'm ever going to finish this and then as it sort of hurtled towards the end then there's the fear of like oh god I am going to finish it like, what next um, an incredible achievement thank you mm. it was great it was great fun it's still um, I think what's nice is it's still got a little bit of a life to it like you know there's still people who get in touch and then we made this film afterwards um, um which, yeah, I was yeah. going to give a shout out to Ben Cox. Uh, ben it? is, um, yeah, so Ben's lovely, amazing. Yeah, I'll put, I'll put that in the show notes. It's a, a lovely little short. Yeah, it, he. Um, so I did a playlist on Lauren Laverne's show around the time the book came out, and and that day I got an email from Ben. I'd I'd never met him, um, and Ben now lives in Canada. Um, he was like, you know, he's oh, like, does, does he? Yeah, he lives in Vancouver, and he's like ten years younger than me, and so like, yeah, I want to make a film about it. I'm like, okay, fine, and then. Yeah, my eldest was born and, and then we were sort of in the hole with that and it was busy and, and then it took, I think it took Ben over a year to make it and everywhere it was like, no, this is definitely the last shot, and last shoot and it was never the last shoot. There was always something more but it was totally worth it because he did such an amazing job. I mean, that was a bit of a, we sort of redid bits of floating but then we went to places, we went, we went to Sky and we went to the Cairngorms, mm. did a couple of swims in East Anglia that I'd done before um, and then we swam under the murmuration here in Brighton in, a, in the February. I'm, I'm going to include one of the photos actually in, in the show notes as well. I love that. That's one of the most beautiful images. He is so like, like 
precocious as well. He's so talented. And yeah. I think that he really got it as well. And I think he really um he really let me sort of tell my story. It wasn't like we went and sat in the studio and just spoke for like four or five. It, that was like a big long therapy session. And then he sort of took it away and like cut it all up and weaved it all together again. But it was great because um it it just sort of uh, it gave the book another lease of life, but also it, it just sort of it it helped like when I do talks about it now, I just show the film because actually it captures it really captures the essence of everything really, really it does. nicely. It's really tastefully um, done. Yeah, he he's a pro. Um I gave him a little I wrote a little piece in The Guardian the other week about one of the swims that we'd done, gave him a little shout out and he he sent me a video from Vancouver, he's like jumping off a pontoon into a lake. <laughs> Made me sick. Furious. He looked like he was having such a good time. And so so, so this um this whole undertaking of the book, it, it sounds like it was very much tied into your, your own mental health journey. Yeah, it was. And it, wasn't, it, it wasn't ever intended to be. But it, but it just it be, unfolded. It that became way. that. And then it became whatever it is now that, you know, advocacy or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, it's still something I really, really care about. The book's like been out for the three years. It's five years since I finished writing it. Hmm. Yeah, almost five years since I finished writing Like, eight years since I started it. So, you know, it's been a big part of my life, nearly a decade. And yeah, and it's 10 years since I read, first read Waterlog. Um, um, what, what were your main learnings after the three years? What- that, um, yeah, that I was enough. I think that was the, one of the big things. And that the water wasn't the only thing. I think I put the... You, know, you said in the book yeah, at one stage, uh, you realised that this wasn't going to cure yeah, you. Yeah, there's not, like, you can't just put all your eggs in one bar. It's like anything. Like, you can't just say, right, this is the fix, this is the panacea, and then not, you know, oh, I'm going to go swimming and I'm not going to talk about my problems. That doesn't work like that. So it was having that, building those, those coping strategies beyond the water. Because it's not, like I said, like, you know, sometimes in January you don't want to swim. Mm. Sometimes in the summer, like last week when the beach was really, really busy and I was just a bit like, this is too much. I didn't really want to swim then either. You know, I would have loved to have like, had access to an amazing lake where there was no one around. But it's the height of summer. That's not going to happen. Have you, do, have you done a swim in Oakfield? Do you know the lake? We did Lakewood, didn't oh, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah, totally it's beautiful. Forgot. Yeah. Yeah, it's There's amazing. another one up there that, that I'll, I want to bring oh, you Oh, please to. do. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I love it up there. Because that's the thing. Like, around here, like, fresh water is um, harder to come by. I mean, obviously, it is, isn't it? This- I mean, you've got the meanders, but that's kind of brackish. And I, I do like it there. But you're always a bit, if you go in the summer to cut me, you're always a bit on show. Mm. You know, you sort of go and there's always a crowd walking past, like, oh, you having a swim? And there's, the, you know, there's people kayaking and paddle, which is fair enough. Like, you know, it's for everyone. Mm. But I do like a, an isolated spot. You know, that's, my, that's always my preference. A little bit of a nip in the air. Yeah. That's my thing now. Cold, not colder the better, but certainly a little bit, a little bit chilly. So have you any other gems around Sussex that you can... Uh, Do you know what? I can't. Can I can't. Ter- terribly, terribly. And Lakewood is the one I always tell people about. Mm. Um, I've been... Because I don't... Well, because I didn't drive and because I still don't have a car. Um, I tend to just stick to the sea. I mean, I, I, I like swimming along in Rottingdean and Salt Dean. There's something about that. There's something really... Um, especially sort of springtime at the start of lockdown I was swimming down there a lot and it was great because it was still bloody freezing but you got the beach to yourself it was amazing light the sea the sun still drops into the sea so you've still got that I don't know there's still some sort of connection the starlings are still murmuring it feels like you know you, that emergence in the spring is really special down there more so than I mean I love swimming in the beach in Kemptown but obviously you've got the marina and the pier and it feels a bit more industrial mm. not when you look out to, well I suppose you've got the um, wind turbines as well but yeah, I am missing. 
I'm missing like I'm missing like mountains and lakes. That lockdown has made me want to go back to those, but maybe when everybody calms down a little bit and stops camping in the Lake District illegally. So what were, uh, what were your three top lidos? <sighs> Tooting back. Number one. Number one. Yeah. Um, I've never been to any of them. I'm only Shame. saying this because Jenny Landreth, my friend who wrote a book called Swell about the history of women I swimming. I heard your podcast. I'm yeah. Jen, Jenny, you will, Jenny will bollock me if I don't say <laughs> to, to like, um Then Cheltenham is amazing. Similarly huge. I've got a real soft spot for um, for Brockwell as well in London because I, I used to live really close. I lived in Camberwell for three and a half, four years. And um, that was my local spot for a Lido swim. It was like a five minute bike ride away. Um, yeah, those, I really like, there's a little one in, um, is it Ingleton in Yorkshire? It's a tiny little pool. It's not really, I, w- I wouldn't even call it a Lido. It's like a 20 meter pool. It's beautiful. And it's, um, but then, I don't know, I've given you five here. Pels as well in Lewis. I can't really live down here and not say the Pels. Again, I haven't been to that. I'm ashamed. The joy of Pels is the, because it's fred from the river, so it gets nice and, it's, it's bloody cold, but that's the joy of it. And what would you say for your wild three wild swims? Where were the Briar in the Isles of Scilly? Just because it's so it's so hard to get to, but it's so so beautiful. Two and a half miles long, half a mile wide. You get round it in you know you can be swimming in different. There's like four or five different bays to swim in. Is that the one you did with your uncle and your dad? No, that was in um, that was Jura in Scotland. Okay. See, actually, I didn't get to swim there because um, I'd broken my wrist. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> no, Briar I did with my friend Molly. Um, that I mean, the water that we went in September and it was fucking freezing. Yeah, <laughs> really cold. But so be- I had the wetsuit on. I was like swimming over kelp forests with the goggles on. It was just amazing. Um, I love um, Loch Aline, which wasn't one for the book, but is in the Cairngorms. I went there with Ben for for Waterdog for the film. Um, that's just this small loch in the, uh, near Aviemore in the Rothy Mercius Forest, and you see like red squirrels and sea eagles it's so stunning um that is and it's got like a, a, a ruined 14th century castle on an island that you can swim to and get out and have a little wander around um hell gill was one probably my other one which is the one i did with my uncle in yorkshire on the cumbria border and that's like kind of like a pothole type expedition not for the faint-hearted take safety equipment probably need a helmet more potholing really yeah you can swim in the in the in the little pots at the top but there's one bit where it drops down, which I wasn't brave on. There's a p- picture of me that lo- it makes it look like I was further down than I was, <laughs> like my legs dangling over the edge, sort of looking around the corner in a wetsuit. It wasn't, yeah, I can't remember what time of year that was. October. Mm. Yeah, I took probably risks that were not smart. I was always with people when I did that. Yeah. That's what I'll say. Mm. Yeah, I'm hoping to go- head up in the, in the motorhome, head up to Scotland. So I'll, uh, I'll see if I can take a look at those ones. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give the 16-year-old Joe Minnis? Um, you are enough. Then just be yourself. Don't worry about what other people think. It doesn't matter. I mean, he'd say, fuck off, I want to do that. <laughs> but, um, no, that's what I'd say. Just you're enough. You're okay. You're going to be fine. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's been lovely having this conversation to... Well, from what you've said and the progress you've made, the fact that you have really taken ownership of your mental health and have the discipline to to do the work, because that's what it takes. If you yeah. if you ignore it, if you don't address it, you just continue and more the same. But it, it's actually 
doing the therapy, it's looking at what makes you feel shit and what makes you feel good and having the discipline to. Uh, and it's yeah. really nice to hear that you're in a good place after lockdown. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to stay you know, on that, on that path. It's hard, but you know, hopefully it will continue, mm. but who knows what the future brings. But yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good right now. That's yeah. Good for you, Joe. Nice one. Thank Thanks so much. Dave. Yeah. Thank you for that. We, we can't even have a hug or even give a high five. We can't even do the, are we even allowed to do the, the elbow bump? I'm mean, yeah. like the football. What even is that? Like you see him doing it in the football. I'm like, I didn't think you were allowed to do that. It's almost yeah. pornographic. I have a Rob Delaney saying like handshakes seem pornographic now. So I it's love true. Rob Delaney. <laughs> he's, he's, um, God, he's been through it. Yeah, I'm, he has. I met him, my, a friend of mine, my best friend from Dublin, Jim O'Hanlon. He's a director, and he directed some of the catastrophe oh, episodes. Oh, cool. And because of my music background, my, mm -hmm. my involvement with bands and stuff, they needed a band for this episode, and I provided the, the, the band for it and went up and met yeah. Rob and uh, met the whole crew and everything. Lovely fella, but Jesus, he's... He's yeah, another he's, massive he uh, mental health advocate. Yeah. Suffered. Yeah, terribly. Well, he was an alcoholic, suffered terribly with depression. Yeah, and then obviously his kid dying yeah. as well. So it's just oh, it was like, heartbreaking. Yeah, it's brutal. But yeah, I mean, I think those sort of, if we can have more advocates like that to normalize it, then all the better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. thanks again, John. No worries, Dave. Thanks so much. Nice Cheers. One.